0: Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we're speaking with Liz Ryan, who is the President and CEO of the Youth First Initiative. Liz, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. No, we appreciate it. For our listeners, Liz is actually in New Orleans tonight, so she's fitting us in in her travels and she's there to commemorate the closing of a youth prison there, and she can tell us a little bit more about that later. But in other backgrounds, the Youth First Initiative is a national advocacy campaign to end the incarceration of youth by dismantling the youth prison model, closing youth prisons, and redirecting resources towards effective community-based programs for youth. So we're speaking with Liz today as we're reflecting on youth incarceration as Netflix has released a miniseries, When They See Us. For our listeners, if you're not familiar with this new miniseries or if you haven't heard about it, this miniseries shares the experience of the Central Park Five. And also for those who are unfamiliar of the case of the Central Park Five, just as a little bit of background In April of 1989, a young investment baker was jogging in Central Park and was badly beaten and repeatedly raped. And there were five youths that were labeled the wolf pack and accused of this crime. And they were convicted of the crime. But the trouble is, is that they actually, it turned out that they weren't responsible for the attack. They served between 6 and 13 years, and in 2002, they were exonerated after a convicted rapist confessed to having raped the woman, and police matched his DNA to the crime scene. So this Netflix series, When They See Us, focuses on the experiences of these boys who were wrongly accused, and so, as I mentioned, this, this highlights for all of us, the need to reevaluate youth incarceration and youth in the criminal justice system. So, Liz, why don't we begin with you kind of giving us an update on where we are, youth in the criminal justice system, and what is still needed? Well, I'm really glad you raised the when they see us, because That
1: film, that series, really is so powerful and moving and emotional, and it really underscores how young people are treated by the justice system. It talks about a case from 1989, but it could also be 2019, right? What you see are young people who are railroaded by cops and prosecutors. You see young people who are wrongfully accused. You see them being, you know, falsely professing through uh, coercive tactics and interrogations. You see young people being prosecuted in adult court. Um, and you see young people being incarcerated. And so when we look at what's happening in youth justice today, a lot of those same inequities, disparities, and harsh treatment are still happening today. The good news is that there are a lot of efforts happening around the country to try to change that. So after that case became very public, a lot of states passed laws to try more kids in adult criminal court, and also federal resources were put towards incarcerating more children and adults around the country. So it's taken the field quite a bit of time to figure out how to push back on. And it's exciting to see lots of efforts to get kids out of adult court, out of adult jails and prisons, to reduce the overall incarceration of young people in the juvenile justice system, to invest more in young people in their communities. So I think there's good news to share about that, but there's a lot more that needs to happen that we need to continue working on.
0: And what should those reforms look like? Well, I think
1: I, I did fall on several categories. One is we're spending way too much on incarceration. We're spending about $5 billion a year to incarcerate young people. So we need to majorly shift those resources towards investing in youth in their communities. You know, we spend roughly $150,000 on average to lock up a young person for a year. You could spend a fraction of that, 15000 20, 25000 a year to support a young person in their community in a really effective mm-hmm. way. So we're 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 dramatically, you know, we're literally locking up the resources in the deep end of the system when we know that that's the approach that consistently produces the worst outcomes. So thinking about that, we're spending the most of our resources on a strategy that consistently produces the worst outcomes for youth and their communities. So we need to completely reverse that. Another is that we need to end the incarceration of young people. We know that it doesn't work. We know that when un- car- young people are incarcerated, that they're much more likely to then be sent to the adult criminal justice system. Uh, they're at risk of assault, harm, abuse. They're not getting access to educational resources and other other things to help them grow and thrive. Uh, so we need to end that system. And that system has been around for a really long time. The first youth prisons were built in the early 1820s. So it's a model that's never worked, and we have a lot of research to show how ineffective it is. Lots of lawsuits in almost every state. So we need to stop doing what doesn't work. And then we also need to make sure that we're uh, not doing that at the expense of sending kids to adult court. So we need to get kids out of adult court. There have been a lot of efforts around the country to repeal statutes that passed in the wake of the Central Park case, and, uh, you know, many states have sort of rethought those laws to end the automatic prosecution of kids in adult court, to stop allowing young kids to be transferred to adult court, sort of narrow that front door, and also to say kids shouldn't be in adult jails in prisons. And I'd mm-hmm. say the sort of last area really is to listen to young people because they know best what they need. They know what they, they know what kinds of things they need to grow and thrive and that we should be listening to young people and supporting them. The good news is the public supports us on that. You know, we did some polling earlier this year that shows that the public believes young people are capable of change. They believe that we should be investing more resources, not less, in supporting young people growing and thriving. They think that states should enact fiscal incentives to keep kids at home and in community and getting access to supports and services. And, you know, we also know that when young people have caring adults in their lives and supports, that they're they're much more likely to um, grow and thrive and become productive and successful adults. So we should be accentuating and building on young people's capabilities and assets to help them grow.
0: Yeah. I'll say that even just in watching the trailer for When They See Us, it was very emotional for me to watch that. It- I I mean, even just the trailer was effective in accomplishing its mission for me. You know, in, in the trailer, it says the idea is that when they see us, we keep sharing these stories, then they'll understand the urgency of addressing this. And I, I can tell you that for myself and watching even just the trailer, I was just shocked and horrified. And, you know, you just think that that could easily happen to anybody. And, of course, one of the disparities that sometimes happen is that there can be racial inequities in the justice system. And it appears in this miniseries that that was part of the problem. Is that something that you see in your work?
1: Yeah. The racial and ethnic disparities in juvenile justice are profound. I mean, we've seen a dramatic reduction in the use of incarceration in the last decade. It's really been cut half and in fact, just this week, the U.S. Department of Justice came out with new numbers showing that it continues to decline. However, racial disparities persist and what we're seeing is that young people of color are much more likely to be incarcerated than white youth, even when charged with similar offenses. They're treated much more mm-hmm. harshly, much more punitively. And it's not because young people of color commit more crime than white youth. That's actually not the case. White youth and youth of color commit roughly the same levels of crime. The system is just much more harsh and much more punitive. And it really stems from where the, where the criminal justice system originated. You know, you see mm-hmm. it's a legacy of slavery that really hasn't hasn't addressed these profound disparities. Um, We see, you know, one of the the greatest points of disparity is when there's a decision made about incarcerating that person. So in a state like New Jersey, black youth are 30 times more likely than white youth to be incarcerated, right? In Wisconsin, black youth are 15 times more likely than white youth to be incarcerated. So you're seeing very dramatic disparities that continue to persist even though the, the overall numbers of youth being incarcerated are coming down.
0: Mhm. Yeah and I think one of the other things that gets highlighted even just in the trailer is you see some of that coercion or just the interrogation tactics and one thing that I found particularly troubling and is when one of the younger teens is being interrogated and I think it's his sister that's there and they're trying to get her to sign something and they're saying, don't you want to help your brother? You know, sort of promising that he can go home and she's feeling that pressure and who knows what the implicate, I I don't know just from the trailer on what the consequences were of her signing that paper, but I imagine that it ended up being part of what led to his conviction, which is really upsetting. And uh, something that we've talked about recently on the podcast as well is that sometimes for people that are a little bit removed from the criminal justice system, it can be the assumption. I know I have guilty of it at times too. There can be this assumption of, well, an innocent person wouldn't plead guilty. But when you see a story like this in in this mini series, you see the circumstances, the fear, the confusion, the lack of resources. You know, you see one of the youth saying, oh, I think I'm going to get money from church. They said they'll help me. It's heartbreaking to realize that socioeconomic status and those things can all influence whether a person takes responsibility for a crime they didn't even commit or not. And I find that really troubling and and I feel like that's something that is also part of what needs to be reformed in the criminal justice system is something, I I shouldn't say we, like myself. (laughs) Uh, That's something that the criminal justice section has focused its attention on and and members within the section, they're working toward plea reform and and cash bail reform and things like that. What is the state of reforms like that for youth and the criminal justice system.
1: You know, there's a lot of efforts that are happening. First, that to the area that you're talking about in terms of interrogation techniques utilized by law enforcement that were really um, brutal on these young people. You know, they kept these young people uh, in interrogation rooms without water, without food, without sleep, without any adult presence. And they forced these kids to confess to something that they didn't do because the young people at a certain point just broke. You know, they wanted to go home, so they said what the cops wanted to hear. Uh, And then those tapes were used against those young people. In fact, that was the only evidence that law enforcement had um, against these young people. And it it was a horrific outcome, right? They were all uh, sentenced, they were all convicted, and then they were all, incarcerated as a result for, for many, many years, and their, their childhoods, you know, were robbed of their childhoods. Yeah. So that kind of work, I mean, there are lawyers that are working on trying to put safeguards around interrogations, what the process is, who has to be there, uh, how long they can be um, undergoing those kinds of interrogations, whether or not they're taped interrogations. So there's there's work that's happening on that front. There's also work happening around detention and incarceration of young people. You know, the Annie Casey Foundation has had a whole initiative for more than two decades now to reduce the inappropriate detention of young people, um, to keep young people out of being detained, because the understanding is that once you detain a young person, then they're more likely to go deeper in the system and then to be incarcerated. There are also efforts by groups like Campaign for East Justice, which is really focused on ending the prosecution of kids in adult criminal court, ending the placement of kids in adult jails and adult prisons, and now with the Federal Juvenile Justice and delinquency the Act reauthorization happening this past year, that there's now sort of the federal statute that's stronger and has more teeth in it that can really help jurisdictions to move out of placement of kids in adult court. And, and that was something that was part of the When They See Us film, but I, I don't know that it was emphasize as much, but all of these kids are tracked to court, so there are efforts by Campaign for Justice to get rid of that. And then for kids who are in a court who've been sentenced to to die in prison, groups like Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth are working to change those statutes to end juvenile life without parole and to end lengthy sentences. There are a couple of other areas where people are focused as well, so groups like youth advocate programs, which... Really works with young people in their community and they work with, with kids with high, high risk to reassign and also uh, complex needs. They're really working on a campaign to, to ensure that young people have access to community based, based supports and services. And then groups like Juvenile Law Center are working with organizations and individuals to end these exorbitant fees and fines that young people and their families are being charged, right? So in mm-hmm. every state in this country, every state in this country is permitted or required to charge families for the incarceration of their child. So imagine mm-hmm. that your child is being incarcerated and then you're being charged for child support or child care, as it's called in some places. Um, and there are I lots, know of, that. lots of... The yeah, there's, these fees and fines exist across all areas of the justice system, and, and they actually help fund some aspects of the justice system, and even even public defender offices, so that there's a really perverse incentive in there to keep the fine or the fee in place. And so, juvenile law Center did a report last year looking at at sort of the breadth and the depth of those kinds of fines and fees. Um, and they... They're working with people across the country to try to repeal them. So what we're seeing on a lot of these areas is that there's a real appetite to roll back some of these heinous policies that are seen uh, across the country and to really highlight the expertise of young people and their families who've gone through this so that they're the ones who can – share their stories and their recommendations about what reform needs to look like. And that's really exciting to see policymakers responding and feeling the heat or the pressure, frankly, to to do something in the wake of these horrific stories and abuses that are coming to light every day.
0: Yeah. So now on the other end of things, yeah. there are youth that commit crimes. And in this miniseries, it features a miscarriage of justice. And youth that were victims of the criminal justice system, now the reality is is that sometimes youth are committing crimes, and there can be a question of competency and the level of accountability for the decisions they're making just because they are youth, but it's it's a hard example but for example, the Parkland shooter. He was a teenager at the time, right, and he committed this horrific crime against his fellow students. What What is the answer, then, that's recommended as an alternative to the criminal justice system for someone, for a youth that really has committed a crime and has hurt people? And there's a lot of damage that's been done by their actions. You
1: know, that's a really good question that you're asking. I think that... Um, a couple things I'd say in response to that. One is that the vast majority of youth who are in the juvenile justice system don't need to be there. Right? They mm-hmm. haven't. They don't pose a serious risk to public safety. And particularly young know, people who are incarcerated in the juvenile justice system. The vast majority of them could be better served in their communities. So we're really using strategies that should be reserved for the very, very few instances when young people are at very serious risk to reoffend or have done something that the public views as dangerous. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we shouldn't be re- utilizing juvenile justice resources for – all kinds of uh, things. We should really be reserving that. So it should be a rare instance that a kid's in the juvenile justice system, and a very rare instance that they're in any kind of secure care. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the second is that you know it's it's less than one percent of kids in the in the juvenile justice system who commit a crime such as what you just said. And I think that
0: right, yeah, if it's, you a, really, it's obviously an extreme case, right? It, yeah. It, Right, so that's important important to know. Well, yeah, should we be
1: building a system around the extreme cases, right?
0: Um, Right. And and then giving everybody that.
1: Right, right. So that's, you know, part of the reason why the juvenile justice system was created, was created as an alternative to the adult criminal justice system. And I think there's some aspects of it that are true to what it was originally created for. And there's some aspects of it, like the incarceration system, that, have become a feeder system to the adult system. So when we send a kid to a youth prison, we're just substantially increasing the likelihood that they're going to reassign and they're going to end up in the adult criminal justice system. So
0: right, often we in have a choice. Society... Yeah. Yeah, we underestimate the collateral consequences that come with a conviction, even after someone's been exonerated. And the, and the miniseries does highlight that as well, the challenges to reentering society and just the significant disadvantage that many returning citizens face, whether they were guilty of their crimes or that they were exonerated. And it was announced that they hadn't committed the crime that they'd been convicted of.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we have a choice as a society, right? We can hold kids accountable and essentially increase the likelihood that they would reoffend and end up in a worse situation and be a long-term consumer of the criminal justice system. Or we can invest in young people and respond in a way that helps them to grow and thrive. And I believe we do have a choice and that and when we've seen examples of really responding in a way that holds a young person accountable but ensures that they receive the appropriate treatment and services that they need, that we can see positive things happen for those young people. But those are the exception rather than the rule and we really need to we really need to change that. Yeah.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about what keeping these youth in in their homes or in their communities would look like? What the services that you're referring to look like more specifically? You know, it would be a menu of
1: services. It could be counseling. It could be access to mentors. It could be individualized services for that specific young person. It may be support on education. It may actually just be helping that young person find a job. In some instances, Mm It's an economic situation that exacerbates a young person's needs and Mm -hmm. enters into the justice system. Sometimes it's a question of responding in that way. So it really is an individualized response that we need to make Mm -hmm. sure that young people get. So that, that individualized support for that young person, it's not cookie cutter, and it's not the same for every young person, and it's not the same level of intensity for every young person. You know, I sort of equate it to like, does every kid need piano lessons? No, right? Like, we should, that should be something that someone chooses and that they want to do, right? So if they want to play like Elton John, you know, they can go take the allergy. but if that's not something that a young person's interested in, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna be a good fit. Mm-hmm. So we really wanna appropriately match the services and supports and ha- give that young person some agency choice over whether or not those are the kinds of things that they think would help them.
0: Yeah. Well we know that you've got an event to go to. Why don't you before yeah. we close, why don't you just tell us what you're celebrating tonight?
1: Uh, so I'm here in New Orleans at an event organized by families and friends of Louisiana's incarcerated children, known as Flick that they're holding tonight on the 15th anniversary of the closure of the Tallulah Youth Prison. So they're using this as a conversation to get people together to think about the future of the youth justice system here in New Orleans and throughout Louisiana.
0: Well, that's great. And thank you again, Liz, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your experience With youth in the criminal justice system. Where can our listeners look for more information about reforms and how they can get involved?
1: To get more information about reforms and how to get involved, go to nokidsinprison.org. Thank you. Great.
0: Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.